Luke chapter 1, we'll be reading beginning in verse 5, the account of the revelation to Zechariah that he would be the father of John the Baptist. I want to uh, highlight a, a portion of Scripture I noticed rather late on, on Christmas Eve from Zechariah's prophecy when he was when he was responding to this good news that he received about John the Baptist. If you turn over to chapter 1 and verse 68, later in that chapter, Zechariah is responding in praise to God for this announcement that he would be the father of his first and only child and, and the, the forerunner of Jesus. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited or helped and redeemed His people. The evening service, the Christmas Eve services, we looked at Luke chapter 7 and the promise that, or the, the, the narrative of Jesus healing that, that dead and only begotten son of the widow of Nain. And the people looked at that healing and they concluded, this is the great prophet, the one who has visited or helped us. The word is episkeptomai. It's a word from which we get episkopos or bishop or elder. It means those two things. An elder is one who visits in order to help. And this is the great one, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls, the one who has visited us in order to help us. But what made Zechariah in particular give this kind of praise? What moved Zechariah in particular to say, the Lord has visited me to help me? I think you'll find it encouraging this morning as we read his story beginning in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell on him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, 
and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." But Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of my favorite movies is an old movie by now, The Water Diviner, starring Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe depicts or plays the role of of an Australian farmer who had a sixth sense by which he could find water in the most unlikely places. With his water witching stick or by his sixth sense, he could find water so that People could, could supply themselves as well as their animals. And against his better judgment, his and his wife's better judgment, he allowed all three of his sons to sign up for the Anzac troops in World War I. They were deployed to Turkey. They fought in the Battle of Gallipoli. When World War I was over, or that battle in particular was over, their sons did not return home. And there was no word from the British government as to what had happened to their sons. And his wife, their mother, fearing the worst all along, despaired and killed herself. And now Connor, the father's name, Connor, having nothing left, decided he would use that sixth sense to go and find his boys, presuming they were all dead on the battlefield where the British were overseeing a great burial effort on that, on that battlefield in Gallipoli. Well, the British were not allowing people there, as you can imagine, but he went anyway. For three months he traveled. He finally arrived in Turkey, and then he bribed a fisherman to take him over. And when he arrived on the shore, the British intercepted him, and they said to the, the, the man in charge, the officer in charge, said, we're going to put you right back on the boat. We're going to ship you back. He resisted, refused to leave. Finally, a Turkish officer by the name of Major Isan went to the British officer in charge and said, why will you not help this man? 
He's, he's lost all three of his sons. Why will you not help him? He snapped back. Well, what if I tried to do that for every Brit who came and tried to find help? I would be constantly searching. We can't serve everybody who wants to find their son and refuses to allow the burial to go on with those who are experts. What if we tried to help everybody? Major Hassan said, but he is the only father who came looking. Yes, there are many who want to find their sons, but this is the only father who has come looking. It is the distinction of our faith from all other religions. All religions tell us there's something wrong with us. All religions tell us there's something we must do. Most religions say there's something broken that needs to be repaired, but there is no other faith that has the story of God putting on flesh and coming to look for us and to find us and to save us. You know, the the grace of the Advent stories, the grace of all of these stories in Luke and Matthew about the, 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 the announcement, the the, the coming, the birth of Jesus Christ, the grace of all those stories is found in the verbs. Two verbs characterized all of them, appeared and announced. We never find, we don't find the shepherds wandering around out in the field saying, when is God going to reveal His Son to us? We don't find anybody like that. It is God always announcing and appearing to bring good news. And if we gather up all, those, all those, uh, those stories, all of those narratives, we can categorize in this way, and we find that Jesus or God through Christ has appeared or announced with good news, good news for every conceivable sad situation. Think of the desperate man Joseph, to him an angel appeared. Think of, the, think of the delusional magi lost in their false worship. They saw a star. A star appeared. Think of the discarded Mary, a pregnant teenager, pregnant out of wedlock. To her, to this discarded one, the angel appeared and announced the good news. What is it with Zechariah and Elizabeth? Who are they, this couple who have no child? When we looked at Christmas Eve at that story of the widow of Nain losing her only begotten son, we said that was a terribly sad story, that it was regarded to be among the saddest of human experiences by the people of the day. Well, there was one experience, only one experience viewed to be sadder, and that was to have no children at all. Here is Zechariah. Here is his wife, Elizabeth. Sad, sad parents, barren, both advanced in years. Whom do they represent? The disappointed. Is that you today? Someone disappointed and suffering. The disappointment may be put on you by somebody else. 
You may have disappointed yourself, disappointed those around you. Life has disappointed you. You're disappointed for others. You're disappointed that Christmas is over. You're disappointed there are no more presents to unwrap, no more presents to give. You're disappointed. The world is one more year, and the world seems no better than it was last year. Maybe it's even worse. You're disappointed. Well, guess what? Today, God has found you. He has appeared to you. And he is announcing to you his good news. You say, I don't see him. No, you don't see him, but you hear him. Whether you're here in this sanctuary, whether you're tuning in somewhere else, whether you're tuning in years from now, we believe that every time God's word is read and proclaimed, it is Jesus himself speaking, not George speaking, it is Jesus speaking with his words. And this day, he has found you, disappointed one in order to announce to you his good news that Jesus has come. Now, what do you do? Now that he's shown up, he's found you, and you are listening, what must you do in response? Three things. Three things that are not duties, but they are responses to grace. Three things. Remember obey and keep. Remember. Remember what? Remember that God's providence, just like your salvation, is by grace alone and received by faith. God's providence. What is God's providence? You know, in our, in our, the back of our hymnal, we have the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We don't have room to list all of the Bible verses that are put there to support all of those, those statements. You can look that up online, but you could go to the back of your hymnal sometime and look at question uh, eight or nine. No, I'm forgetting which one it was, but the, the definition of providence. What is God's providence? God's providence is His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of every creature and every action. Those pastors in that old day, back in the 17th century, gathered up all of the Bible verses regarding God's providence, which is just, this is the way He guides our life. The way God guides our life, we call that providence, and it is His most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, governing, or directing of every creature and every action. Do you find any exception there? Are you outside of one of, every, of one of every one of his creatures? Are your actions outside of every action over which he rules? Are you not preserved this day? Then you must believe that his holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of every creature and every action is also, as the Catechism affirms, and the Bible teaches over and over, from a good and gracious God. Now, see, our, our definition of providence is this. <clears throat> this is the way we, we default to, that God's providence shifts according to my actions. 
that he guides me into miserable ways when I fail. And when I'm successful, he guides me into good ways. And so the reason I'm disappointed today, you may say, the reason I'm disappointed is because I've made such terrible decisions in the past. Or I'm disappointed today because of the way I was born. Or I'm disappointed because of these parents I've been given. Or I'm disappointed because of the way my children have turned out. Or I'm disappointed because I've done something and God is punishing me for it. So the providence, God's guidance of my life, it is this way because of me or because of what others have done to me. And God's providence is reactive rather than all-powerful, preserving and governing. But did you hear the description of John and, I mean, of Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives? Well, they were straight-A students, weren't they? They had everything. They had pedigree. They had accomplishments. She's the daughter of Aaron. She's of a priestly line. Uh, She uh, is um, with her husband, righteous and blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. doesn't mean that they were absolutely perfect, but it means that uh, the overall pattern of their life is one of exceptional obedience and, and faithfulness. And yet she was barren. Now, we're sophisticated people. We're scientific people. We know that you're not, uh, that people are not able to have children for all kinds of reasons. But in, in those days, the idea was if you didn't have a child, it's because something was wrong with you. There's something defective about you. Defective about your body, defective about your husband. There's something defective probably about your morality. You've sinned in some way. You failed in some way. You didn't pray enough. You didn't have enough faith. Or some were even so radical. There was even reincarnation uh, floating around in the ideas of men in those days. So maybe it's something you did in your past. Oh, yes, you're, you're priests and you're, 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 you're of the cloth. You're, you're, you're ministers. Uh, yes, but something, something went wrong and God, is, God punished you by not giving you a child. This is what they thought. But this can't be. There may be any number of reasons for why they did not have a child at this time, but one of them was not because God was punishing them. And if Christ is your Savior, there may be any number of reasons you're going through what you are going through, but one of them is not because God is judging you. You may be experiencing the consequences of your sin, but your judgment, if you're in Christ, has fallen on Jesus. God's providence in your life, the way He is guiding you, even after your sin or after your failure or after your disappointment, the way God is guiding you is out of His goodness. He causes all things, even your failures, to work together for the good of you because He loves you and you love Him. All things. God's providence is as much a matter of God's grace as your salvation in the first place. You can do all the right things and still suffer disappointment. And you can do all the wrong things and God is still good. 
you can be so disappointed with God's grace that even when it is obvious that good things are being done for you, you can say, no, no, that can't be. Isn't that true of Zechariah here? Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Instead of, Zechariah has been praying his whole life for the, the birth of a child. He's praying even then for the coming of the kingdom. He's ministering in the house of the Lord, just, just the two of them, God and Zechariah. The angel shows up, couldn't be any more obvious. He's standing right on the altar and he says, you're going to have a child. And Zechariah says, how am I supposed to believe that? Show me a miracle. <laughs> Gabriel is not as patient. Gabriel just does what he's told. Gabriel's not as patient as the Lord. Gabriel said, I'm Gabriel. I've told you what God said. And to keep you from saying anything else stupid, I'm going to keep your mouth shut until the day comes and the son is born. And then your role, you have one line in this play after that, John. You can be so disappointed God's grace seems too good to be true. That was true of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, wasn't it? Jesus, Jesus explained to them he, himself. He explained to him that all the Old Testament pointed to him, and they said, uh, they, 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 and, and they felt his wounds, and they disbelieved for joy. That's, what, that's the way Luke puts it. They, 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 they couldn't believe it because they were so happy. It was just too good to be true. God's goodness, God's providence is always by grace. It is always by grace, undeserved and flowing from the goodness of His heart, even in those times when you think you don't deserve it, and even in those times when it seems too good to be true. What makes it feel too good to be true is because you finally realize what it actually is, and it's God's grace. Remember it. Secondly, obey your calling. Obey your calling. What do you do now that God has found you? Do you go and think your way out of this? Do you go put on a happy face? No, you do the next thing. Calling. Calling in the Bible is not just your profession, not just your job. It is whatever God is telling you to do. So what does He tell you to do? The next thing. Just keep doing the next thing. And the next thing is not hopelessness. The next thing is not passivity. The next thing is never quitting. The next thing is always the next step. Lord, I'm going to take the next step. Maybe the next step is getting up from this service. At the end of this sermon and receiving the benediction, stretching out your hands though you don't want to. Maybe the next step is to Walk towards someone with whom you need to be reconciled. Maybe the next step is to go home to a place you really don't want to go and to do what God has called you to do there. Or maybe the next step is to go to the fellowship hall and fellowship with other people. Or maybe the next step is to go to worship 
you're not in worship this morning, perhaps, and there's still a worship service tonight, still a worship service in a couple of hours. There are worship services every week, as a matter of fact. They come around about the same time every week. They're on Sunday morning. It's scheduled faithfulness. And you've stayed away, and you've said, I just don't feel like it anymore. I can't come with the right heart. Do the next thing. Just go. Like my friend, I told you about it, uh, some of you at the 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service. She came to the 8 o'clock service just minutes after her father had died. And after her father had died, she'd been holding his hand. After her father died, she said, what do I do now? And she said, I'll do the next thing, that is to go to worship. This is what Zechariah did. Zechariah's heart was broken every day of his life. Every day that Elizabeth, while she was of childbearing years, came and said, I did not, I don't have a child. I'm not pregnant. Every day he went about his work. He went about his work in the temple, not in this holy place because this only came once in his lifetime. But he went about his work every day. And when you're doing, responding to God's calling, which is as simple every morning as opening His Word and opening your mouth to pray to Him. You may not know what else you're going to do any part of that day, but it must begin, it should begin with, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, at least that much, and speak to me in Your Word. When you're putting yourself in front of Him, obeying your calling, which is to respond to the Lord every day, yes, in a kind of worship, but especially on the Lord's day, when you are responding in that way, you will hear Him more clearly. Not all the answers you want, not all the ones that you're looking for, but you will, you will hear Him and you will be changed. You'll be given hope. When I was growing up, my dad made my breakfast every morning. And every morning the ritual went this way. George, breakfast is ready. He didn't have to add any other words. It meant come now, sit down, eat your breakfast before you leave. You're not going to leave. You're not going to get it on the go. You're not, I'm not going to bring it into your room. You're going to come. You're going to sit at the table, and I'm going to sit across from you. You don't have to talk. You don't have to have a good attitude. Thank goodness, because I seldom did. You don't have to say anything. But over the course of 18 years, tiny bits of humor, wisdom, truth seeped into me. It was formative. It also helped my day nutritionally. Didn't hurt there either. But that's what worship is. It's tiny bits of grace that, ac that accumulate by compound interest and form you into the person God wants you to be. And among that forming, those formative influences includes the gift of hope, the ability to hope, to believe, regardless of how disappointing you see life to be. Obey your calling, which is to pursue the Lord in worship. The final thing to do in response to his finding you today is to keep praying. To keep praying, verse 13, <clears throat> Zechariah, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. 
Now, it's unclear what prayer he's referring to. It may seem most obvious that he is praying to have a child, but that's not so obvious if you think about it. Zechariah and his wife were well beyond childbearing age. It would be rather foolish for him, humanly speaking, to keep praying that he would have a son. So maybe it's a reference to his, his prayer in the past. We also know that in this service of incense, he was to be praying prayers on behalf of Israel, as the people on the outside were also praying. And that prayer was for the kingdom of God to come. O Lord, bring the Messiah to Israel. Cause your kingdom to come on earth. Cause your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe all of those prayers were mingled up in Zechariah's heart. It doesn't matter what they were specifically. The prayer isn't written down so that we sort of repeat it like a magical spell. The point is this, God hears the prayers of our hearts even when He doesn't listen to the prayers of our lips. That's not original with me. That's St. Augustine. St. Augustine from the 4th to the 5th century, I've talked about many times that his faith in the midst of a society that was melting down, he had his eyes fixed on the city of God, and he said about his mother, who, Monica, who prayed a, a, a faithfully for him to be converted. And then one day, he's, and, he, and he's, he's, he was an immoral uh, man. He was a pagan philosopher, and he decided that he was going to leave Carthage and go to Rome so that he could discover more philosophy and sin more. And she begged the Lord, stop him from going to Rome. Do not let him go to Rome. You can't let him go to Rome. That will be the death of his soul. But he went to Rome anyway. His mother eventually followed him there. But when he got to Rome, he came under the preaching of a man named Ambrose. He was so taken with his oratory that he was forced to listen to him. And he heard the gospel and he responded to the gospel. He got saved. And, and Augustine, reflecting on that many years later, said, the Lord heard the prayer of my mother's heart, which was that I would be converted even though he ignored the prayers of her lips. Keep praying. Oh, what if my words are not the right words? It doesn't matter. Pray from your heart. And the Lord interprets the prayer of their heart, and here's the way to guide your heart, the way Zechariah, we know at least part of his petition was he was praying for the kingdom to come. That was his job. He had some prayers. He had to pray. Maybe he didn't feel very much like it as he was in that, that uh, holy place, but he was praying, bring the kingdom. Bring the kingdom to earth. Do your will. Bring the Messiah. That is a prayer God always answers. You may not see how he's doing it. You may not live to see how he's doing it. But he always answers that prayer. No matter how much it seems he's not listening to you. No matter how much it seems that he's ignoring you. God always answers the prayer for the kingdom of God. And he always answers it with grace. How do I know? Verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John, Yones, which means grace. 
Shut your mouth, Zechariah, so that even you don't hear any more of your unbelief. And just practice this word over and over again until I open your lips. Grace, 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 grace. His name will be called grace. God always answers a prayer for his kingdom. For your good. Because he's a God of grace. Francis Thompson, one of the greatest poets in English history, though he didn't realize that before he died. C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, G.K. Chesterton, all of these trace their inspiration to Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson was initially reared to be a, a priest. Then his parents changed their mind and wanted him to be a doctor. He went off to medical school. He failed. He wanted to be a writer. Eventually, he uh, joined the military to get away from his parents to do his own thing. You know, when you get tired of other people telling you what to do, you join the army, right? Right? He was released from the military, though, after only one day of service. So he went to London. And like so many in his day, like so many in our day, became addicted to opium. It left him homeless, left him terribly sick. He sold matches to to just get a little bit of food, he slept outside on the River Thames, and he wrote poetry. Somehow or another, he, he sent off one of these poems to uh, a couple named the Maynells. They were publishers. And one of his poems especially caught their attention. It was called The Hound of heaven. All of these years, Francis Thompson had not only been fleeing his parents because he feared so much that he had brought shame on them, he'd been fleeing everyone because he had shamed himself, but he realized in some odd way the Lord had found him, that the Lord was like a bloodhound, never allowing him to get away from him totally. He writes in that poem, among other things, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up-visted hopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed, followed after. The hound of heaven never let go of Francis Thompson until he caught him. 
By means of that poem getting into the, into the hands of the Manels, the Manels brought, them, brought him in, nursed him to health as best they could, though his health was mostly wrecked. They published his poems. They showed him love. And they eventually put him into a monastery where he could be taken care of in his frailty until he died at 47. But by the time he died, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that though he felt shame himself, though he felt like he had disappointed everyone else, he was loved by the hound of heaven who followed and followed and followed until he captured him with his love and gave him hope. You have been found today. Remember, providence is by grace. Obey your calling, keep worshiping him, and keep praying. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you never give up on us. We give up on ourselves. We give up on other people. But you never give up. Oh, I pray that you would be the bloodhound of heaven. The Holy Spirit would be that bloodhound that gets your man, your woman, your little boy, your little girl. This morning, you get them in the clutches of your love and convince them that you are their Savior. Give them hope for the future. Whether they're embracing it for the first time or the thousandth time, pull them close to yourself and restore their hope in the midst of their disappointment. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.